0: Exodus 10.1 opens this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 10.1, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. All of the plagues will be accomplished. Now the locusts are the eighth plague. This is the second longest treatment of a plague outside of the final one, the death of the firstborn and the going out. This uh, The location is most likely in the court of Pharaoh, not at the Nile, which we've seen a few happen. And you'll notice that God opens by telling Moses, go to Pharaoh, I have hardened his heart, and notice, the heart of his servants. If you pick up uh, chapter nine and just look at the few final verses we ended this way last time, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, Exodus 9, 34, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, 35, and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. I want you to know, for those of you who are wrestling with the issues of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, that there is a direct relationship between Pharaoh's sinning And the hardening of his heart. So that we would argue that the hardening of the heart is sin. And God does not cause people to sin. So we know that sin, by by very definition, is volitional. Amen? That is, if you sin, if you transgress, even if you miss the mark, it's on you. Therefore, the hardening of the heart is both the free will of Pharaoh and his servants. And then God hardens his heart as well. These are both true. There is the free will of Pharaoh and the sovereignty of God. And I know that makes some of your uh, heads hurt a little bit because you're like, how do you figure that out? And someone once said that free will and sovereignty are two truths taught in the Bible. Uh, They both go up like pillars into the sky and somewhere God puts the roof on it. And I'm not terribly worried about how he puts the roof on it because I see the Bible teaching both. And I will tell you that we have people in our congregation who may lean more towards Calvinism and others who may not. And this is something worthy of debate, but never should it be an issue of division. And if people get militant about pet doctrines and lose sight of the bigger mission of us as God's people, we have lost our way. Whether it's in the realm of Calvinism and Arminianism, whether it's in the realm of spiritual gifts or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've watched this for the last 30 years. And I can debate eschatology with friends of mine. I can debate soteriology. And at the end of the day, we are still brothers and sisters in the Lord. Amen? And if we allow the enemy to get a foothold in these areas that really ultimately we would say, of course, essentials, we gotta die on that hill, but in non-essential areas, we gotta give charity. Charity! That's a word we gotta get back because there's enough division going on in the church without this other uh, issue becoming a problem. And so no doubt Pharaoh sinned, his servants sinned, You might want to just note Exodus 9, 34, 35. I took you to Romans 1 in a previous message and told you that there is something to consider here with Pharaoh where God gave them over three times from uh, Romans 1, 24, all the way to verse 32. God gave them over three times. Whatever you think the initiator is and all of that, I'll let you wrestle with it. But Pharaoh sinned, his servants sinned, Certainly his heart should have been soft to God by now, but uh, it was not. And so God says, I'm gonna do all of my signs. I'm gonna do them for my glory. I'm gonna do them, you can check out 916. Just go back for a moment and we'll kind of close the book as we uh, move forward. But indeed, 916, for this cause, I have allowed you, Pharaoh, to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. I'm gonna show my glory, if you will, and evangelistic purposes for all the plagues that my name, who I am, might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. This is some of what's behind God's uh, doing all these 10 plagues there in Egypt. And so he says, I want you to go. Go to Pharaoh. I've hardened his heart, the heart of the servants, one that I may perform these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell, there's not only an evangelistic purpose for the world, but it's also for Israel and generations to come, verse two, Exodus 10, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson, and you can also add your daughter and granddaughter, how I made a mockery, literally I made sport of, humiliated the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them Notice, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, there was a Gentile reason, if you will, a worldwide uh, evangelistic purpose. Other people groups would hear of the God of Israel and how he did these mighty works and uh, parted the Red Sea and so forth, brought the locusts, the hail, and so forth. And people would hear about the name of God because God so loved the world, not just Israel, the world that he gave his only begotten son. So this would go out to the world, but it also was specifically designed, says God, that you might pass to generations to come the glory of God, that you might tell your son, your grandson, however many generations you are blessed to be able to see and interact with, the glory of God. The first generation of delivered Hebrews are to narrate this incredible event Says one writer, to their children and grandchildren, and hence induct them into the world of wonder to recruit the next generation of Israelites into the daring scenario of courage and confidence, passion and faith, because they would have to go conquer the promised land. If for no other reason, this reason enough is why Moses cannot agree with Pharaoh's later ploy that the Israelites leave their children behind. How does one tell the old story to the next generation? If there is no next generation to who it can be told, close quote, we ain't leaving anybody behind. Our kids are going with us. The women are going with us. The kids are going with us. The flocks are going with us. Everybody's going. We're not leaving one person behind in Egypt, Pharaoh. No, no, no. And I don't have to tell you that the generation that is coming up right now has been bombarded at breakneck speed with worldviews that are overwhelming. So that if you don't have a spiritual barometer or a foundation by which to measure things, you will not know what to believe. In fact, the, one of the biggest things right now is that you can't even know truth. That's what's going on right now. And our educational system with all the weird things that it's imbibing to younger and younger ages, frighten me. I can't believe the things that I see, but they're happening. And the good news is that parents are stepping up, some of you have seen this in school board meetings and the like, and said, no, no, you're not gonna teach this to my children. One of the things that came out during the COVID time was the kids were on Zoom and uh, teachers were requesting that the parents not listen into the lessons. Say what? Why would you have an issue having the parent hear what you're teaching the child? This is, this is where we are. And the educational system of our world is certainly drowning in so many different ways of political correctness and the like. I could go on and on. But it is up to us, brethren... And you're going to have to pray through, if you have younger children or or grandchildren, how you're going to handle the education of your children. But the core bedrock, though it is mocked and dismissed by many in our culture, is this. You are to tell your children of the glory of God. You're to do that. The youth group is simply supplemental. Now, there are some kids that obviously don't have believing parents, and by God's grace, sometimes they end up at a church brought by a friend or so forth, and that's all wonderful. But if you have a crack at it, then you tell your children the most important thing that you can give them, that there's a God. That he made them in his image. That there's somewhere, there's a purpose for their life and somewhere they're going that there's hope and the tears and the death will be no more. How could we bunt on that one? How could we leave it up to somebody else when we hold this treasure, we're to guard it and give it away, amen? Boy, we need to be stirred. I want you to tell the story of what happened here. Just flip over a few pages to Exodus 13. We'll deal with this in some depth as we move forward, but the Lord spoke 13.1 to Moses saying, Sanctify, Exodus 13.2, to me, every firstborn, the first of, uh, offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. And Moses said to the people, remember, this day in which you went out, From Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, nothing leavened shall be eaten. And then skip down to verse 13 of Exodus 13. It says these words, but every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Why do you live this way? Why do you do what you do? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, that is having to do with the animals here, But every firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as your phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Tell your son, this is why I do what I do. This is why we go to church. This is why I give of my first fruits to the kingdom of God. Because I was once a slave. And you know what? What? For me, that's exactly my story. I was a slave to my sin. I was in bondage. I thought I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. And in my early 20s, the Lord got a hold of me by his grace, radically saved me and my beautiful bride, set our feet upon solid ground, lifted us up out of the miry clay. And by God's grace, our kids were young. Shane was very young, when I became a Christian, when I got serious about my faith, I really marked the time with the birth of Shane in the sense that that's when I got serious about the Lord or by his grace, that's, where, that's when he called me. And so my kids grew up in a Christian home and it wasn't always perfect, it was bumpy and when we were newer Christians, we didn't know what we were doing. We were trying to figure it out. We were trying to figure out what God said about different areas of life and how do we do this and what should our life look like. But one thing Brenda and I knew, we were slaves and God delivered us with a mighty hand. And so I will tell every generation while there's breath in my lungs unashamedly that this is the one I follow. This is the one on whom I have built my life. And that's what we gotta do, brethren. And and I don't think it's that complicated, actually, because when it is the core of who you are, you don't have to force it, they'll know. You don't have to put on a show, they'll know. It's not about a Sunday show, this is who we are. Yesterday I, I had a chance to do yard work at my house, and it's not always fun. But I put on worship, and all day long I was worshiping and working. This is who I am. You ever notice you 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 can put on worship music, and then if you switch the station to maybe some for me it'd be some I can't believe it, but Kate Earth is playing songs that I still think are contemporary. (laughs) Can I get a witness? Some of you who are my age, songs from the '80s and '90s. I'm like, what do you mean? Isn't that right now? Oh, no, it's not. That was 30 and 40 years ago. Am I in a time warp? No, maybe in denial, which is simply a river in Egypt. Anyway, never mind. (laughs) Ephesians 6, 4, write it down. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Raise them up in the fear and admonition Of the Lord, or the fear and discipline of the Lord. Now we love. Sometimes we love to focus on the last part. Kids, line up. (laughs) I'm gonna teach you about the fear and discipline of the Lord. But it also says, "Don't provoke your children to anger." Amen. Yeah. Okay. I think you guys are out there. We gotta find a way. First Peter three fifteen. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to give a defense, an answer, a reason for the hope that you have, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's the implication that my life would actually beg the question, amen? That someone would watch me live and say, why is it that you live that way? Why do you talk that way? Why why don't you curse like everybody else does? Why don't you do this like everybody else does? And it shouldn't just be the why don't I do, it should be also why I do what I do. Why do you love that way? Why would you sacrifice that way? Why would you do what you do? Why do you read that Bible, et cetera, et cetera? You can fill in the blanks. Tell the story. It's the most important thing you can do. And Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, verse three, and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long? There's almost an implication of astonishment from Moses. Moses has to be watching Pharaoh and thinking, how long is this guy gonna do this? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Notice, the issue with Pharaoh is pride. Let my people go that they may serve me. It's either humility or humiliation, Pharaoh. How long are you gonna continue to resist and fight? If you refuse to let my people go, behold, we're moving from lessons now to locusts. Tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the surface of the land. They're gonna blanket everything. So that no one shall be able to see the land. They shall also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. We would assume, of course, the hail is melted away now. And they shall eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. This is going to be a locust layover. They're gonna be covering everything. They're gonna finish off what the hail didn't destroy. And it's even worse, your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came upon the earth until this day. And Moses turned his back, literally, and went out from Pharaoh. Here's the record. Moses laid out the reality of the eighth plague to Pharaoh. There's no recorded response but of course pharaoh continues to harden his heart moses shares the details he turns around and walks out it connotes leaving in opposition with no happy resolution it's like moses already knows that pharaoh is not going to cooperate so he tells him of the next plague and he turns his back and walks away and to me i find this somewhat symbolic of God's interaction with Pharaoh. Because remember that Moses, this is, I think, chapter seven, verse one, would be as God to Pharaoh. And Jesus, when he sent out the 12 and then then the 70, he said, basically, those who receive you receive me. Those who reject you and your word reject me and my word. You are my representatives. You are my ambassadors as though God were pleading through you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, for people to be reconciled to God. And when Moses turned, when he gave Pharaoh the details of the next plague and turned his back and left, he becomes a picture of what God has done with Pharaoh. Pharaoh. God turns his back, if you will, symbolically through Moses and walks away. What a sad, sad situation. To imagine that the one who made me and created everything would turn from me. But there's, there's scriptural support for this because God talks about how he turns his face away. And there's some imagery here. And you might say, well, what would, what would cause God to maybe turn back to us? It's very simple. It's one word, repentance, which is always mingled with humility because one won't repent unless they humble themselves, amen? True repentance is going to be mingled with humility. That will always turn God's face back to you. Think about it on a human level. When somebody's pride and puffed, proud and puffed up, and, and they won't hear anything, what do you typically, at some point, you just say, okay, if you won't listen, then I guess we ain't talking anymore. But when someone humbles himself and says, you know what, I'm sorry, let's, let's make this right. It's a very simple resolution. So this is the only time in the accounts of Moses' encounters with Pharaoh that he is described as turning and leaving Pharaoh, and I believe it becomes a picture, and so the locusts are coming. In her memoirs of her life as a young pioneer, Laura Ingalls Wilder recalls the day that a strange dark cloud descended on the Minnesota prairie. Plunk, something hit Laura's head and fell to the ground. She looked down and saw the largest grasshopper she had ever seen, and essentially locusts are grasshoppers. The huge brown grasshoppers were hitting the ground around her, hitting her head and her face and her arms. They came thudding down like hail. The cloud with hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. Their bodies hid the sun and made darkness. Their thin, large wings gleamed and glittered. The rasping whirring of their wings filled the whole air, and they hit the ground in the house with the noise of a hailstorm. Laura tried to beat them off. Their their claws clung to her skin and her dress. They looked at her with bulging eyes, turning their heads this way and that. Mary ran, screaming into the house. Grasshoppers covered the ground. There was not one bare bit to step on. Laura had to step on grasshoppers, and they smashed, squirming and slimy under her feet. Grasshoppers beat down from the sky and swarmed thick over the ground. Their long wings were folded and their strong legs took them hopping everywhere. The air whirred and the roof went on, sounding like a roof in a hailstorm. Then Laura heard another sound, one big sound made of tiny nips and snips and gnawings. The grasshoppers were eating. You could hear the millions of jaws biting and chewing. Day after day, grasshoppers kept on eating. They ate all the wheat, they ate all the oats. They ate every green thing, all the garden and all the prairie grass. The whole prairie was bare and brown. Millions of brown grasshoppers whirred low, low over it. Not a green thing was left in sight anywhere. This is the power of the locust. It, is, it can be a fearful thing. And Pharaoh's servants seven said to him, how long? Moses said, How long? They said to Pharaoh, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. Notice they say the men, that they may serve the Lord their God. Don't you realize Egypt is destroyed? The emperor has no clothes. Everything is ruined. Pharaoh, being pampered, you know, fed his grapes and they would, you know, fan him and whatever. Maybe he didn't realize. Maybe he was in denial, but. Here's the deal. The nation, Pharaoh, is ruined. You appear to be the only guy that doesn't see it because he had become blind. And so a corporate meeting ensues. (laughs) Uh, Pharaoh. Now, they blame Moses, but is Moses really the problem? Is Moses really the snare? Well, in one sense, yes. But who's the problem in Egypt? Pharaoh and his advisors who won't let the people go. And he's blind. Pharaoh refused to acknowledge what was clear to everyone around him. He was blinded. The nation that you lead, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, is destroyed. And so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. We'll call him Flip-Flop Pharaoh. (laughs) And he said to them, All right, go serve the Lord your God, verse eight. But who are the ones that are going? going? I need a list of people who are departing. Uh, Do you have a list? Uh, Can you print it out? Can you email me? Can you text it? We need a list. Okay, you can go, right? The corporate meeting took place. They said, Pharaoh, Egypt's ruined. I don't know who convinced uh, the Pharaoh to call Moses and Aaron back, but however it happened, they come back. And so... Okay, okay, you can go now, but I, but I want a list of people. Some of the advisors might have been thinking, I want to go too. Can I be on the list? <laughs> Get me out of here. Locusts were everywhere, covering the ground, in the houses, they were everywhere. Whirring and chewing and biting and landing. And, Ugh. and Moses said, we'll go. We shall go, this is emphatic, with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And sarcastically, Pharaoh says these words, thus may the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. This could be re- rendered, uh, some uh, scholars say, evil's in store for you. But he said to them, ESV, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind, NIV. The Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. You're not all going. This is flip-flop Pharaoh. You're not all going. The men can go. But evil awaits you. I know what you're up to. I'm not going to fall for it. This, I tell you what, Pharaoh's a disaster. <laughs> He's having a bad hair day and he doesn't have any hair from what we know about Egyptian history. Pharaoh's reply, a little difficult language in verse 10, is full of scorn and anger. How could I ever give in to so extravagant and an outrageous demand as this? Not so. Go now, the men among you, 11, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. You want to go to that mountain and worship the Lord, all right? But only the men among you. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. He said something like this Get out of my office! (laughs) I'm sick of you! All right, your men can go. He can't bring himself to say everybody can go, the young, the old, the women, the children. In Egyptian worship, doing a little reading on this, apparently only the men were really involved in their worship. So maybe Pharaoh thinks, well, all you really need is the men, but that's not the Bible. The Bible's centered around family worship, and certainly men have leadership within the family. And by the way, men are supposed to lead their families toward Christ, And though they have leadership in that, still, it's a whole family affair. And so everybody's got to go. Another proposed compromise. Listen to the following from a concerned voice. The men can go, but not the kids. Pharaoh told Moses that the adults could go into the wilderness and sacrifice, but they were to go without the children. Pharaoh suspected undoubtedly that if Israel would go three days' journey into the wilderness, they would keep going. He wants to stop them. And he knows that if he keeps the children, the adults will come back. Just as Pharaoh tempted and tested Moses with compromise, so the child of God today is tempted with compromise. Children all across the country are being brought up in an educational system that is absolutely contrary to the teachings of Christianity. The child of God is told that he must learn to get along in the world, make all the money he can, and get involved in the world. I've been a pastor for over 30 years, says this voice. And again and again, I've seen Christian parents want the best for their children. They want them to have the best education. They want them to succeed and be rich. One after another has fallen and departed from the Lord. Many members of churches have served. Uh, I have served have lost their children to the world. Wanting the best, in quotes, of the world for their children is the most subtle temptation that can come to Christian parents. What do you expect, my friends, says this writer, when you send your children to these worldly institutions and they come home thoroughly brainwashed? Why do you say, my, how could he do that when he was brought up in a Christian home? The problem is that he was not actually raised in a Christian home. The parents of many young people may be lovely Christian people, but they did not really train their children in Christian precepts and values. They were so anxious and ambitious for them to get on in the world that they lost them. Moses and Aaron would not accept Pharaoh's compromise, and this made him angry. His anger did not accomplish a thing, however, because another plague was about to begin. Do you know who said that? J. and McGee in 1975. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, brethren. And in one sense, that kind of sobers me, that whole quote, because after the, I read that quote, I want to say, and all God's people said, ouch, amen? Because we want the best for our kids, but you got to know that and this is even true now with so-called Christian universities, whether or not they're gonna be founded in a Christian worldview is questionable at best even there, let alone a secular university. See, universities that were once Christian and trained pastors, Yale, Harvard, they're gone. Their, Their history that was embedded and founded in Christian principles is now either hidden or wholesale denied. And if McGee said that in 1975, that also gives me hope because that means that every time we look at a younger generation as older people, we sometimes think, oh, that's it, it's over now. <laughs> They're gone, Locust, locust. <laughs> Not necessarily because there can be a revival, there can be another great awakening, there can be a Jesus movement in our day as well. Amen? Amen. And so the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in the territory of Egypt, 14, and they were very numerous. That's an understatement. (laughs) There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. Now we have some pictures of locusts that I wanted to show you. And let me Uh, just take you through a series of a few photos so you can see. They're pretty cute, right? Close-up shot of the locusts, which essentially are grasshoppers. Let's go to the next one. Uh, This gives you an idea of when they come into an area, how dense, how many of them. uh, It's very difficult to deal with. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, You can see another shot. Uh, whatever you're trying to whisk them away with is probably gonna not do much. And then finally, let's go to the next one. You can see when they gather on something like a tree like this, uh, it's difficult to see the tree anymore. And they, when they're all eating and chomping, it's an eerie sound. It's also a scary reality that to try to deal with them once they've swarmed into an area is, uh, it's tough to do. They covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. this anticipates the next plague the ninth. And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit trees that the hail left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt of Egypt. Locusts have voracious appetites, says one writer and can eat virtually any type of plant, no crop or vegetable or fruit, stood a chance against against this unprecedented, unduplicated plague. Egypt would have no food, a remarkable reversal of what happened during the days of Joseph. The plague was devastating. They ate everything. I'm gonna just take you to a, a couple of passages to show you some parallels. We're gonna to go to the book of Joel. You say, where is that, Pastor Michael? I don't know. It's page number, 9 I'm just kidding. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. All right, we're going to Joel chapter one. A little bit of debate about the dating of the book of Joel, but there is a locust plague that occurs. And here's what it says: The word of the Lord came to Joel or Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, Joel 1, 2. Listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days, Joel 1, 3. Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. So now it's a plague that happened in the life of Israel, not in Egypt. What the gnawing locust has left for, Joel 1, the swarming locust is eaten, What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And then you say, well, why? Notice, awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. Now we know that Israel's issue was idolatry and that's why judgment often came to the land. But here Joel says, there were a bunch of people abusing alcohol. And this was one manifestation of ancient worship. Not that you drank wine, that was kind of a staple in Israel, but that you drank it to excess, and even that it mingled together with your worship of false gods. And many scholars believe that the locust plague is a uh, type of the day of the Lord, the ultimate judgment in embryo. It's a foreshadowing. And even maybe the, in the Assyrian invasion of Israel or more specifically in the Babylonian invasion of Judah. For a nation has invaded my land, Joel 1.6, mighty and without number. Notice how it's described. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion. The locust foreshadows something worse and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. This gives you images of, back. makes you think of Egypt. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. And then you skip down, it says 15, alas, Notice how it moves into day of the Lord imagery. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. God is given the credit for the invasion. Now, I don't have time to go through this with you, but in the next chapter of Joel, it picks up on this imagery of the locust invasion, and it talks about An army and the locusts eventually kind of migrate into the the image of a worldly army that God uses. And here, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's army. And look at verse six of Joel 2. It says, Before them, that army, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb like the wall, the wall like soldiers. They each march in line, nor do they deviate from their path. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks, scary invading army. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses, images that are captured in the locust, but now in this army. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earthquakes, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord, it's indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? But keep reading, yet even now declares the Lord, what does he say? Return to me with all your heart, With fasting, weeping, and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. What's the solution when locusts come? Rend your heart and not your garment. Get right with the Lord, and the Lord will heal you and even leave a blessing behind. Look, there are times when God gets our attention, and it can be tough to deal with, and the world has been reeling with things. I just read to you a locust report from a year ago, not to mention the coronavirus and everything that's happened in the world. And God says, you know what? If you just simply turn to me, maybe I'll leave a blessing behind me. I want to show you one other. This is very intriguing. It's all the way in Revelation 9. This is probably the scariest chapter in the Bible. And I had to share it with you because <laughs> it connects. Revelation 9, 1. The fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, Revelation 9.2, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts, Revelation 9.3, upon the earth. Power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men, notice, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, that is, those who don't belong to the Lord. Perhaps 144,000 here. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. Now notice this. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses, so obviously not an actual locust, prepared for battle. On their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. Their head, their, they had hair like the hair of women. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. Some see and hear the Roman army as it destroys uh, Jerusalem in AD 70. And they have tails like the tails, like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name is, in Hebrew, Abaddon. And in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes still are coming after them. Of course, I think you would see in this now a last day's judgment, the day of the Lord judgment. Ultimately, you can could, you could see foreshadowings of the ultimate day of the Lord, but the book of Revelation depicts a day of the Lord when God's judgment finally falls on an unbelieving world. And thank God the church is not here. And thank God the remnant of Israel is uh, marked out for protection. Praise the Lord. You don't want to meet these characters in a dark alley. You don't want to meet them in any alley, do you? <laughs> all right, we'll go back to Exodus. Let's see what Pharaoh does. So Pharaoh said the men can go. He got obviously prideful and all of that. 16, Exodus 10 but when the locusts came, Pharaoh hurriedly heard, called for Moses and Aaron. And notice what he said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Wow, that's very similar to the uh, confession of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Now, f- therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Pray for me, make supplication to the Lord your God that he would remove this death from me. Like a lot of people in crisis, Pharaoh called for a minister. <laughs> Modern application, right? I'm in trouble. Don't we have that pastor's phone number still? Can he come over here? Talk to the big man upstairs? Yeah. Okay, I've sinned. The Egyptians worship the false god Min, M-I-N, the patron of the crops. He wasn't having a good week. Men worshippers held an annual festival. It was called the Men Festival. Just kidding, I don't know if it was, but it lasted only a men, it, and uh, it was minimal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you needed some humor after the Revelation 9 thing, right? So get this, the festival may have been happening during the eighth plague. Isn't that funny? Oh, men, wait a minute, let's, whatever. And the locusts came in right during the festival, and all the gods that are supposed to protect the flocks took a vacation. (laughs) You got to find some humor here, right? Isis was their goddess of life who prepared flax for their clothing, Nepri was the goddess of grain. Anubis the garden, guardian of the fields. Senehan, another false god, was the divine protector against pests. They're all having a bad week. And Pharaoh says, okay, I've sinned. Take away the deadly plague. Godly sorrow, godly, godly grief. There's a sorrow that is according to the will of God that produces repentance without regret. 2 Corinthians 7.10 leading to salvation, but there's a sorrow of the world that produces death. Listen to this. Guilt says, I'm sorry I did it. Sorrow says, I'm sorry I did it to him. Guilt is feeling sorry for one's sins because they're destroying one's own life, i.e., I got caught, I got consequences. Sorrow is feeling sorry for one's sins because they grieve and break God's and others' hearts. There's a type of, of I sinned, I blew it, that is simply just to get the plague of death away. And then I walk away. But godly sorrow is, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And the father says, oh, no. <laughs> no, you're my son and we're going to have a party, and we're going to put the best robe on you, and we're going to kill the fatted calf, and we're going to celebrate because this son of mine was dead, and he's beginning to live again. That's godly sorrow. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh, made supplication to the Lord, and the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, took up the locusts, and drove them into the Red Sea, which is going to happen to the Egyptian army. there. This is a foreshadowing. They're all gonna drown in the sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory. But <laughs> the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Why don't you turn to 2 Chronicles 7 and we're done. Worship team, if you can come on up, prepare yourself for the last song, 2 Chronicles. So go a little bit to your right. You got 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, first and second chronicles. Let's go to Second Chronicles 7. This is the uh, dedication of the temple under Solomon. Uh, he has completed what David had in his heart and uh, Solomon prays and dedicates the house to the Lord. And here's what the text says. And let's just keep in, this in mind. For the issue of the locust and what what Israel was called to do, so the, the Lord's uh, glory filled the house. Second Chronicles seven one priests couldn't even enter the house the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the house. Boy, I tell you, that's what I cry for every Sunday. Oh Lord, let people minimally say, "Surely God is in this place." Let them see Your glory. So here's what it says. The Lord appeared to Solomon 12 at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray. Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Sweet sister in the Lord a couple of weeks ago joined us for worship. She's a member of another congregation. She's always an encouragement to me and she said these words to me. She said, Pastor Michael, you did a great job with the message and you had everybody to the point where we needed to repent. And I sure wish that you would have called upon us to repent. And I was like, woo, say it, girl. And there are times... When we as the church hear a message like this and we look at everything else out there, right? (laughs) Okay, if only they would repent, if only he or she would repent, if only they would get it together, we got no control of that stuff. But what we can say, Lord, is if there's stuff in my life that's got to go, so I can become more like Jesus, I can tell the story of your glory, I can become more consecrated to your purposes. Help me to humble myself and pray. Father, thank you for the patience of God's people to hear this message. Uh, It's not an easy one, but it's a powerful one. And we are to tell the story of your deliverance. And here's the good news. The good news is that we've already been delivered from the locus of death. (laughs) Because in the gospel, we are free. The book of Exodus is a book about salvation. And it is our story because it foreshadows the coming Passover lamb who would purchase our redemption, call us out of Egypt, out of the world, call us into the promises. And all your promises, we sang it earlier, are yes and amen in Jesus. We already have them. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. You're doing a work. You are no longer counting our sins against us. Yet, Lord, we know In the book of Revelation, in chapters two and three, as you spoke to different churches, several of them, you said, repent and return to your first love. And that, I believe, is the area where all of us could say, Lord, I just want to love you more, love you better. We love because you first loved us. Thank you for your awesome love. Thank you for the freedom of the gospel. Thank you for the beauty of redemption. Thank you that nothing will ever separate us from your love. Help us draw near to you. And if you are not a believer or maybe you feel like you've been a prodigal, this would be a wonderful time just to say, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe in your death on the cross, your resurrection from the dead. Be my king, be my Lord, be my savior. I wanna follow you. The Lord will give you the right words because he looks at the heart. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so wonderfully and beautifully. Bless your people. Leave a blessing behind today, please, because that's who you are. You're You're the God full of compassion and mercy. Thank you for your mercies. Let them shower over your people today. In Jesus' name,